So even though today is the 12th day of Christmas, doesn't Christmas Day feel like a long time ago? Like we've been kind of on a journey since then and now. Even New Year's Day for me feels like a long time. Maybe it's because I blocked out what happened in the evening in Pasadena, California or something. I don't know. You know, maybe that's part of why it feels like so, so long ago. But regardless, you know, it feels like kind of a while ago and that we've been on a journey since then. But the reality is today is just the 12th day of Christmas and 2020 the new year, the new decade has really just begun. And so there is a, a new journey ahead of us. Um, sometimes when we start new years, and especially I guess when we start new decades, maybe we can think of new potentials and, and, and exciting new uh, goals in front of us and what we want to achieve and, and, and where we're hoping life will take us. Well, as we think about the journey we've been on, as we think about the journey that is ahead of us, today we have a lesson where we get to look at Jesus' journey. Um, the excitement, which then quickly turns to difficulty, fear, but then also continues to be full of hope. And God continues to carry out his plan and his purpose. And as we look at the path of Jesus' life, we get hope too and encouragement to embrace the journey. Unless we have today, it's Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, the second half of the verse. So most fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Now, in our lesson, too, there's been a bit of a journey from the events of Christmas to where we are there. So let's just trace where we're going and where we've been in the life of Jesus. Of course, on Christmas Day, we celebrate that incredible event of God himself becoming flesh, of being born a little baby boy and laid in a manger. We celebrate the, how the angels appear to the shepherds, and you just have this beautiful Christmas event Sometime afterwards, you also have that other incredible event where we celebrate the, the wise men coming and, and worshiping the child. And I say sometime after because it could have been up to two years after he was born. We don't really know for sure how long after, but we celebrate that event. Again, that's something that traditionally the church marks at Epiphany, but let's be honest, if your nativity scene looks like ours at home, the wise men are out now because we tend to lump it together with Christmas. It's part of that whole uh, celebration. We have all these beautiful events. But right away, in the midst of these beautiful events, we see difficulty. These wise men who went to see Jesus, who came from the east, first stopped in Jerusalem, and they talked with the person ruling there at the time. And that person, Herod, was really upset about the idea of a new king being born. And many of the people there, too, were kind of unhappy with what was uh, going on. He acted like he wanted to go and worship this new king, but reality is he just wanted to get rid of them. And so God had an angel warn Joseph in a dream that they should pick up and they should leave, that he, Mary, and Jesus should leave and they should go down to the foreign land known as Egypt. And it's a good thing they did because Herod did this just horrific thing where he sent his soldiers to go into the area of Bethlehem and he had them kill all the little boys two years old and younger. By the way, it, it's that two years old and younger. That's where we get where Jesus could have been up to two years old by the time that the wise men came because Herod chose that age based on when the wise men told him that they saw the star in the sky. And so that's why it would make sense that Jesus could have been up to or close to two years old. And so you have this terrible, horrible event that takes place where all these little boys are killed. And it's that event and, and the prophecy connected with that that Pastor Krause talked about last week. As we think about this too, we should stop and realize, man, Christmas is this beautiful thing, but what a, what a crazy series of events for 
Jesus' family. I mean, the thing about Mary, I mean, first of all, one, you're giving birth, you know, to a baby that, and you never had relations with a man. You've got that, that's crazy in and of itself. But then you go down and you give birth and he's laying where there's animals having, you know, their meals. And then next thing you know, you're picking up and you're going to a foreign land because someone's trying to kill your baby. And then you find out what happened afterwards. I mean, this is Jesus's life. We have this beautiful start, but then it quickly turns to just fear and running and, and difficulty. I mean, it's a very uh, challenging scene really early on in the life of Jesus. Well, they're down there in Egypt for some time. We don't know how long, but then an angel appears to Joseph in a dream again, and he says, you can get up and go back to the land of Israel. The person who wanted Jesus dead is now dead. And so you can go back and head back that direction. So they do. They pick up. They're going back. Here we have some, you can imagine the excitement, right? They get to go home. And they're going to go back, and the original plan is to, to go to the area of Judah, uh, so or Judea, excuse me. So in the part more near Bethlehem, Jerusalem, uh, so near where Jesus was born, more of the area where you might expect a king to grow up in that region of the land of Israel. But on the way back, even though there's the excitement that, okay, we can go back home, they find out that the son of Herod is in charge. And so again, there's this fear, like, okay, this, this, this does, he's not really that much better. Can we really go back? So instead of going to the region of Judea, they actually end up going and settling in the town called Nazareth, which is where we get to our lesson today, where we see that it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. And the town of Nazareth, by the way, that is where, where Mary is from. And so in a way, that is worth re returning home for her. But at the same time, while that can be a blessing, man, you can understand maybe some of the challenges there. Remember, she was pregnant before her and Joseph were together. They were gone for who knows how many years now. Imagine the questions when you just show back up in town and, where have you guys been? Well, let me tell you. They end up back in this town called Nazareth. You can imagine that was a difficult move for them, but it fulfilled this prophecy or these prophecies that we have here in this lesson. But as we look at our verse where it says what well, it was fulfilled, what was said through the prophets, we're going to have to go through a bit of a journey to try to understand and get our heads around what exactly this verse is saying. Because this verse and this fulfillment of prophecy is a bit different than many of the fulfillments of prophecy that we see in Scripture. Last week, Pastor Krause took you through verse 17, where it says, Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. And it's less than tears of sorrow to tears of joy. There it stated specifically, okay, these are the words of the prophet Jeremiah. And so he could go back and, and talk about that lesson. Well, here in our verse, it just says the prophets. Well, which one? Or which ones, I should say. It, it's multiple. It's plural. So you might think, okay, so maybe this, this must be a phrase here than this, this verse that is said by many of the prophets. But here's the thing. The phrase, he will be called a Nazarene, is not found in the Old Testament. Nobody says it. Not one. And the city of Nazareth isn't even hardly, really even referred to at all in the Old Testament. So what is Matthew doing? What is he talking about? We have to go on a bit of a journey to see. You get to go on a bit of a journey to try to understand what he's talking about. And, and the, the journey that we need to go on involves us going and understanding really how the Bible is written and how prophecy in the Bible works. Because it might not be the way we typically think about how prophecy should work. It has something to do with this literary tool in the Bible known as 
a design pattern. We've been exploring how biblical narratives work, and it turns out stories in the Bible are like any other story. You've got to pay attention to the characters, the setting, and the plot. Yeah, these are the basic tools an author uses to help readers see the meaning and significance of the events. Now, it's time to learn one final skill that will bring all these elements together. How to detect design patterns in biblical narrative. What do you mean by design patterns? Well, the biblical authors have shaped all these elements, character, setting, and plot, to create series of repeated patterns that weave through story after story and tie them all together. When you notice these patterns, you'll see how different stories across the whole Bible have been coordinated to emphasize key themes. This sounds interesting, but how do you know how to find a biblical pattern? Well, biblical authors do it subtly. The best way to catch on is to watch them embed key words and images that link stories together. Take, for example, one of the main themes of the Bible, the complex and tragic human condition. Okay. So let's start at the beginning, where God is making a really good world. Right. Seven times it says God saw that it was good. So those are clearly important words. Now watch. God appoints two characters named human and life to rule this world on his behalf, and they're told that everything is good for them to eat. Except for the tree of knowing good and evil. So then the humans doubt God, and in Genesis we read, they see that it's good to take this knowledge for themselves. Then we read, they desire to become wise. And then finally, they take what they want. And everything falls apart. This story is about the human condition. And on its own, it's a really powerful story. But the biblical authors don't leave it there. They turn it into a pattern. It happens again with Abraham and Sarah. God brings them into the promised land, promises them a child. But they don't trust God. They get impatient. And we read the same words. They see their Egyptian slave. They take her and do what is good in their eyes. You get it? Yeah, the stories match. Then you get to Aaron at Mount Sinai. And we read how he sees and then takes the gold of the Israelites to make the golden calf. Or there's the story about Achan, who sees the gold of the Canaanites. He desires it and takes it for himself. This pattern highlights how one person's temptation can create suffering for many people. Exactly. It's just like the story of Saul, where we read that the Israelites see him. They desire him and take him as their king so they can be like all the other nations. And Saul's reign leads them to destruction. Or there's the story of David, which says that he sees Bathsheba. He desires her and then takes her and then kills her husband. And then David's family starts destroying each other. So you see, it's just one basic theme repeated over and over. These stories are all designed to show the temptation pattern. Which is kind of a downer. But the repetition builds up anticipation. Perhaps someone will come and break the pattern. This is why the stories of Jesus have been designed to carry the patterns forward to their climax. Really? Yeah. Like, what does Jesus say when he's faced with his greatest temptation to avoid dying on the cross? Uh, not my desire, but your desire be done. So the pattern flips, and you have one person resisting temptation, and his suffering provides life for many. Now that video would go on and give some more examples of how these design patterns work. That's enough for us for our discussion Today, but I gotta tell you, having my eyes open to the design patterns in Scripture has been one of the most enlightening things for me when it comes to my own Bible reading. Because once you realize that there are these patterns in Scripture, you know what ends up happening? At least what's happened for me? I see them everywhere. You read through all these stories like, well, this sounds familiar, and this sounds familiar, and this sounds familiar, and that's not an accident. All of Scripture is connected. It's these repeated themes that we see in scripture. I also find it very helpful when it comes to understanding uh, the way biblical prophecy works. 
Because in my mind, growing up, I thought, well, basically prophecy was just a prophesying, you know, on this day, in this place, this is going to happen. And sometimes biblical prophecy works that way. It'll talk about, you know, in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you know, it's going to be a child born. There's going to be some of that. But in many ways, in many cases, the prophecy fulfilled that we see, the way it works is that we have this repeated pattern of God's people, which goes over and over again, but it reaches its climax with Jesus. It's fulfilled in Jesus. Or more literally, it's filled to capacity, it's accomplished, it's completed. It's a theme that is there in part throughout the story of God's people, throughout the Old Testament, but it reaches its climax in Jesus. It reaches its peak in Jesus. Because Jesus is Israel's representative, God's people. He, he is the representative of God's people. He is Israel in person. His life is the culmination of all of Israel's history and really the world's history. And that's how a lot of prophecy works, is that you have this repeated theme in Scripture which meets its fulfillment, it's filled to capacity, it's completed in Jesus. And so when we look at Jesus, what we see in His story is actually the fulfillment or the completion of the story of His people. Which is really an incredible thing just to stop and just to take away from here, that, that Jesus' story is really His people's story just completed and fulfilled. Because then when you look at the life of Jesus, you can see that His life, His story is the completion of the story of the people of the Old Testament, but also recognize the people in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, were a microcosm of the history of all people, the story of all people, which means Jesus' story is not just their story. It's our story. And Jesus' life, when you see his life, when you see what he goes through and he does, we need to see our lives as a part of his life. See ourselves in him and see ourselves in his story and see how our life fits as a part as God's big picture story. And then to see the journey that we are on as part of his journey. To see your life accurately and to see your life with, with hope and with encouragement, we have to see it as being connected to and a part of a bigger story, the story of God, the story of Jesus. To see our journey as part of His journey. And to see our journey fulfilled in His journey. Now as we think about the journey Jesus went on, and we think about these design patterns, there's something I, I just got to point out to you that it's just this incredible thing that just come to see in Scripture and to see in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew really lays Jesus out as being like a new Moses or really like a new Israel. And one of the ways you can see this is that if you go through the first events of Jesus' life, it, it, it very much parallels with the events of the Exodus. It's amazing. So if you think about, say, in the Exodus, how you have this oppressive king, Pharaoh kills baby boys, because remember he was threatened by this growing nation or these growing Hebrew people, so he has all these baby boys killed. That's why Moses ended up being thrown in the, in the basket in the river, right? Because there was this command to, to kill all the baby boys. Well, you have a similar thing with the life of Jesus. You have Herod killing these baby boys. Uh, in the, with the Exodus, God refers to, to the Hebrew people as his firstborn son. And so he calls his son out of Egypt. Well, then God calls his son Jesus out of Egypt. We're going to skip the next row and then go on to when they pass through the water. Israel passes through the Red Sea. They pass through the Jordan. Jesus, he passes through the Jordan River when he's baptized. Then Israel spends 40 years in the wilderness. 
Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness. And while the people of Israel are in the wilderness, they fail the test of trusting God to provide food. They, they fail to obey his commands and to worship him alone. Jesus, and this is where you see him flipping things, trusts his father for food, trusts his father, obeys his commands, and trusts his father and worships him only. It's, it's incredible the way Jesus' life parallels the Exodus. But now we've got to go back to this one row with all the question marks. Where does our lesson fit in on this? And I spent a lot of time this last week trying to figure out how it fits in. And here's what I've realized. I don't know. I don't know for sure. I have one kind of idea, but I'm not overly sure about it. And so I want, I'm going to do something. I've never really done this before. I'm asking you this week to consider spending your devotional time reading the Exodus account and then reading the first four chapters in Matthew and see if you can figure it out. Because I don't know, and I'm really curious. Maybe there's something that I missed. So I've been, I've been chewing on it this week. I haven't been able to set on where I have, like I said, I have one idea, but I, I don't know. So I, my, my, my challenge to you this week is to read the Exodus account and then read the first four chapters of Matthew, maybe a couple times, and then tell me next week if you have an idea of how it might fit. Because I'm, I'm intrigued. We're not going to spend too much time talking about it today, partly because I'm not sure what to say for that blank. But also, as we think about the journey, we have to recognize that our verse itself doesn't direct us right away to the Exodus account. We can see parallels in Jesus' life to the Exodus account, but our verse itself actually directs us to the prophets. Now remember, the Old Testament is, is, is commonly referred to as the law and the prophets. The law being the first five books of the Bible, Exodus being part of that. And so what this verse directs us to is not necessarily Exodus, but actually to the prophets, to uh, the books that would come later, the writings of people like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then all the other minor prophets as well. To help us then dig into and try to grasp what this verse is talking about and what theme keeps showing up, what's the design pattern in the prophets, let's break down a bit the word Nazarene, or really the, the name Nazareth where the name Nazarene comes from. The word Nazareth, the name Nazareth, comes from uh, one of two Hebrew words. One of them being Natsar, which would mean branch or sprout, or the other one would be Natsar, which means to watch or keep guard. Now, it's interesting because if it's the word Natsar, if that's where Nazarene comes from, branch or sprout, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 11, we had this lesson we read, where it says, A shoe will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. It would be this word. And so you could see, well, maybe this is playing off Isaiah 11. But Nazareth could also come from this other Hebrew word, Natsar. And so I was like, ah, I don't know then if I want to go back to the Isaiah verse or not. But then, you know, I realized something. As I dug into these words, I realized that the Hebrew word Natsar, which is here in chapter 11 of Isaiah, from all my resources, it looks like that word actually comes from the Hebrew word Natsar. So while they're two different words, it, it appears that one of them, that the word that's translated branch, actually comes from the word which means to watch or to keep guard. And then to take it further, I put up here before you what the Hebrew words would actually look like. And so, by the way, Hebrew words, just a reminder, they read from right to left. Those big um, marks are the consonants, the little dots, 
And like the little thing that looks like a T and a dash, those are the vowels. Okay? And so when you look at these two words, you can see that they have the exact same consonants, which is significant. Because originally, when Hebrew was written, do you know what they did not put in there? The vowels. You were just expected to figure it out, which is kind of interesting to think about. We think English can be complicated sometimes. Think about Hebrew. We're not even going to give you the vowels. Figure it out. So when you were to look at these two words, originally, they would have looked exactly the same. And they would have sounded very similar, and, and one comes from the other. And so, the name Nazarene and the town Nazareth, whether it's from Natsar or, or Nazareth, the reality is those two words, are, they're, they're basically the same. They're connected. And so there's a theme that's developed that we see sprouting up in Isaiah 11, which then can become a theme for us as we look throughout the prophets. But before we look at the rest of the prophets and think about this theme as a whole, we should probably stop and consider how could the word, which means to watch or keep guard, be the basis for a word that's translated branch? It just seems like a strange, and I think this is why, because why this sometimes gets overlooked. I mean, why do you get branch from a word which would mean to keep watch or keep guard? Part of it has to do with the context that it's used in. And, and, and actually, I've just, just think about this this morning. This might be the best way to describe it. Let's say if uh, is Tom and Linda aren't here this service, are they? Tom and Linda are the ones that, that maintain. I know Tom was here late last night watering these. Showed up on the ring doorbell alert. I know he was here being very dedicated. And if I were to go through and cut a bunch of this off and destroy it, you know, and then let's say he might jump up and say, no, not that one. Not that piece right here. Because I don't want it to completely die. I want it to survive. I want it to, to continue forward. I want it to grow again. If he were to maintain one of these branches, one of these pieces, it wouldn't just be a branch, there'd be some more significance to it. It would be a part that was protected, a part that someone watched over. But then not only watched over, but then the idea was that it actually it could continue and in a way would end up actually watching over the plant as a whole because it would be how the plant would continue to grow in the future. And the context that this is used in, in Isaiah suggests that same idea, that it's a branch, it's something that sprouts up, but also it's, it's out of, remember, this devastation. Remember, God's people, the prophets talk about this often over and over again, turned away from God. They rebelled against God, and so there is this destruction that happens. <coughs> there is this enemy force that is against them. <coughs> Excuse me. That is trying to get rid of them. And so the theme that we see developing in the Old Testament is that God, even though there is this destruction, and even though there is this enemy trying to get rid of them, God preserves a branch. Keeps guard over a remnant of His people. He watches over that remnant so that someday what comes from that remnant and a descendant from that branch or the one who would be that branch could actually then save and watch over his people. This is the theme throughout the prophets. Again and again, they, they talk about this destruction that would come because of people's sin, but yet God would preserve and bring hope out. God would preserve a branch so that there could be a descendant. This is a the theme there. This is a the theme that we see play out throughout the Old Testament. And this is the theme that reaches its completion and its fulfillment in Jesus. Where you have this enemy power looking to destroy him, and yet God protects him. 
protects him so that he can grow up to one day lay down his life and protect his people. The journey that Jesus is on is the, the fulfillment of the journey of, of God's people. It, it reaches its fullest extent where God's people had turned away from God in various ways, met destruction, met powers trying to get rid of them. But God protected a remnant, protected a part, protected a branch that could grow up and save his people. This is the story of the people of Israel. This is Jesus' story because his story is their story. This is what his journey is about. And this is what his journey, if this is what his journey is about, this, if this is what his story is about, then this is what our story is about too. That we, as we go through our lives, will run into times, run into things where we have opposition, where we have difficulty, where things might seem like the world is against us and falling apart, falling apart. But no matter what it is that we face, no matter what opposition we might run into, God preserves a branch of hope. God gives the glimmer that someday things are going to be set right. And this is not the end of the story, but it will continue going forward. And you can know that God will preserve your hope for your life because the culmination the fulfillment of your life, the epitome of what, what it all points to, what your life is a part of, is this story. And if God preserved the life, if God had Jesus be that branch, and if that branch grew up to lay down his life and die on a cross so you could be right with God, so that you could have hope beyond this broken life, then you can know that God will always preserve hope and a future for you. Because your journey is a part of his journey. And because his journey went there, went into the dark places, was, went and was preserved so that he could go and die on a cross and rise again to give you hope, you can know that there is hope and there is a future for your journey. But as you think about this journey, as you think about the path Jesus went on, there's something else significant we need to, to, to point out is that this town called Nazareth is not apparently an overly well-looked-upon town. If you go to the Gospel of John, you get to where uh, Jesus is, we're getting where Jesus' disciples are being gathered, and, and uh, one of Jesus' uh, future disciples hears about uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And it's this disciple who, whose name is Nathaniel. Good name, by the way. Good name, Nathaniel. And um, Nathaniel's response is this. He says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Apparently Nazareth was some podunk town that didn't have a lot of respect. I suppose it's kind of like maybe today you might say, you know, Iowa. Can anything good come from Iowa? Which, and if you don't remember, I grew up in Iowa. That's more of a rip on myself. I'm not really dissing Iowa. I'm just goofing around. Um, there's this, apparently Nazareth was not a very well-regarded community in Jesus' day. And apparently when people would hear that name, it just, it wouldn't, it's not something they would, think that would be anything good would come from it. Which, again, fits this design pattern in Scripture. If you go to Isaiah chapter 53, and here it talks about a tender shoot, so it's not the same word as 11, but it's the same idea of something growing up out of a stump, out of a, out of a tree. What does it say? It says, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him, nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. 
He was despised and rejected by men. Yes, he is this, this branch, this hope, but as he grows up, he, he doesn't look attractive. He comes from this place. What can anything good even come from there? His journey, even though it's the journey of hope, is a journey that doesn't look good. And many people would actually despise it and reject it. This is the journey that Jesus went on. And again, this is where it's important for us to recognize that this journey, this story, is also our story. And that there are places where God moves in our lives that don't look good. And maybe we've even been like Nathaniel and have said, could anything possibly good come from this? You know, maybe God has been moving in our lives in various ways, and we look at it, and we don't like it one bit. You know, maybe like, like with Jesus. Maybe instead of going where they were hoping to go, God redirected them to keep them safe. Maybe instead of your plans coming true, maybe God redirected you because he knew that wasn't good for you, because he knew he had something better in store for you, but when he redirected you, maybe you went, What? This is not what I planned. This is not what I wanted. This is not what I had in mind. Can anything good come from this? Or maybe when God has wanted to use your weaknesses to show you his strength, what? I, I, I'm not, this, isn't, this isn't what I planned for. This isn't what I wanted. Or when maybe it's when God says in his word, I want you to do this. I want you to forgive the unforgivable. And I want you to serve other people and put them above you. And I want you to stop thinking about physical, fleshly things. And I want you to see everybody from a heavenly... Like, maybe we, we have this resistance. We're like, man, can anything good come from that? I don't see how it does. For me, really continuing this and loving this person, forgiving this person, serving these people. Can anything good come from that? From where God wants you to move in your life? We look at our story, the reality is... When God moves in our story, sometimes it's despised and rejected, and it's despised and rejected by us. And when we recognize that and we realize our sin and the way sometimes we despise and reject God's ways, then maybe we can be moved to say, well, then can anything good come from us? From anything, can anything good come from our sin and from how we screw up and fight against God's ways and all this? which is where we get that beautiful, beautiful hope that our story is, again, it's a part of his story. And while he was despised and rejected, God used that to direct his son to a cross where he would die for our sins so that you and I, when it comes to our life with God, would never have to be despised and rejected. Because our story is a part of his story. You and I are forgiven and accepted and loved and treasured. That's our story. And you and I are chosen by God, a part of His plan, a part of His purpose, connected with Him and His life. That's our story. You won't have to be, you will never be by God despised and rejected because He was for you. Sometimes the people in the world might look and go, I don't see how anything good comes from this Christian life. I don't see what good you're getting from following Him. But your life is connected to His story. And sometimes it's what's despised and rejected by many that brings the greatest hope and healing and safety for others.
So you and I, we, we, we get to see that our life is not just our life. It's a part of his life. He entered into our world and entered into our story so that we could be a part of a bigger story, his story. The story of a God who always, always brings hope, who always protects, who even when it doesn't look like anything good is happening, is carrying out his plan and carrying out his purpose. So you can be with him forever and so that you can be accepted and be his now. Let's wrap up the Christmas season and let's begin the new year and the new decade by looking at our lives differently, by seeing our lives as being a part of something bigger and by embracing the journey.